Not afraid to tell it like it is. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon till 3 on AM 900 CHML. The jury is out deliberating the Tim Bosma murder trial. To talk more about all of this, Alex Pearson is with us, of course, covering the Tim Bosma murder trial and on the line now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? I'm relaxed. How are you? (laughs) For once in four months, I've actually got time to breathe. Yeah, the shoulders have come down a bit, I guess. Yeah. So, so tell it. Give us an update on what you can. Obviously, the jury is out Uh, Mm -hmm. now. What happens? How do you wait for verdict Mm -hmm. to come in? Is everybody camped out in in, from Toronto, from places all around, in Mm -hmm. order to watch this uh, this verdict? Yep, the media has all moved in, so there's a number of live trucks out front. There's a number of media uh, that have come into town. And um, we've kind of made our own little office here. We've got some creativity juices flowing, so we've set up some desks up here that we found in the hallway somewhere. I'm sure the court staff will be thrilled. Uh, but we've actually created our own little war room down here. The Bosmas are just down the hall from us, and they, you know, stop by and say hi, and we just kind of hang out down here, debate where to go for lunch on our free time, file mm. reports, and wait. That's the big thing about deliberations. It's just the waiting game. And, and while they say that, you're still, you know, you got a bit of a buzz in your belly wondering, you know, mm. what, what are they going to come back with? They actually have already come back with uh, a question, uh, which they asked last night at, uh, you know, 8 o'clock, just close to the time when their deliberations were supposed to be coming to an end. And it's an interesting question because they asked, when did Tim get gas? And referring to May 6th. Right. Tim never got gas on that day. It was never evidenced in this trial. So where they got that from, we're not really sure. But the judge clarified it for them um, that Mr. Bosman, in fact, did not get gas, and it was never part of the evidence, so not to worry about that. And um, from there, you know, all I can deduce from that question is that they're trying to figure out maybe the timeline. You know, did he go out and gas up before the men um, came to his house? Because they've seen... Sorry, I lost you. Um, we have seen video surveillance, of course, from the Super Sucker showing the movements of a truck that looks like Tim Bosma's. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of debate. You know, were both men in those trucks? Was Tim Bosma in one of those trucks? And the movement. So I think what they're trying to ask in that question is timeline of a truck's movements. But again, it, it is not evident, so they will not uh, be, be, I guess, going down that trail. Anymore. Could we allude to the fact that perhaps uh, one of the jurors was stuck on this or trying to look for an extra avenue and, you know, well, therefore pulling things out of the air that you have to go back to the judge and clarify? I hope not. Like, look, their job is not to be detectives, and yeah. so the Columbo is not a rule they should be playing. Don't try to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, the evidence you see before you is what you know they're supposed to go on. My concern would be that they're going to get you know caught up on details like that, and certainly details that were never never presented. I mean, there was just absolutely no. I was you know going back to day one of whether there was evidence. There was never any evidence of gassing up at all. Right. So if they get bogged down in detail like that. Uh, Jeez, I mean, we're on, yeah. we're on day one, and, and those are the kinds of questions. So I, I'm going to put it aside, and maybe, hopefully, they've kind of moved forward, because the kinds of questions we generally get uh, when a jury goes out is, you know, more to how do we get to this degree or to an acquittal or this right. if we're believing that this didn't happen. So it's generally more technical information, but this was pertaining to a particular piece of evidence that didn't exist. All right, so we're going to ask you uh, what the jury was not allowed to hear. We're going to get to that in a sec. I want to yeah. take a call first, though. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. <laughs> Steve is on the line. Steve, what's your question for Alex? 
Oh, hi, Alex. Uh, hey there. Steve, we were uh, chatting a little on Twitter, so I thank you for that. And all your reporting, you've been great. Thank um, you. A million questions, but a couple here. Uh, I think a lot of people wonder about this. Um, Dylan Millard had staff running a hose for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it w- we were going to find out where this was going, and then nothing about that. I don't know if uh, in legal arguments that kind of got quieted down or something. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was one thing, and also curious if you can enlighten us on why uh, a route to uh, first-degree murder was not uh, forcible confinement any longer. The judge took that off the table or w- wouldn't allow that any longer. Yeah, let me start with the hose question. It was hose to nowhere, and I thought it was going somewhere, and we spent, for whatever reason, uh, quite a bit of time looking at evidence uh, pictures, and this was one of the homes that Della Millard owned in the Toronto area, Um, and this hose was marked off with police evidence, and it didn't turn out to be anything, so I'm not really sure where it went, but there was just a hose, and this was turned on by Javier, the handyman that um, Della Millard used, and in fact, he was told to turn on that hose the day that Mr. Millard would be arrested, and it ran for about 10 hours, and he turned it off, and, and that was that. Apparently, uh, Mr. Millard wanted to build some deck uh, area in in where the hose was. It was kind of down a slope. And so I think it was just to see if the area would flood with a large amount of water, and that would determine if he could actually build a deck. I think it's as simple as that, because it never went anywhere. As for your question, and it's important, and I'm glad you raised it, this is a question uh, about a scenario that the jury had in front of it at the beginning of this trial. That the judge said at the outset, Scott, that if they want, if they can come back to first degree murder, they can come back either on planned and deliberate or forcible confinement. And during his charge, he surprised uh, many um, when it was taken off the table on Friday that the only route now to first degree murder is if, in fact, this jury, uh, you know, believes the theory of the Crown that these two men together planned to uh, steal, kill, and incinerate. That makes it much harder for this jury to come back with a conviction of first degree. Not impossible, certainly, but it is a harder route for them to get instead of uh, this notion that, you know, while in the truck he was killed. And, and look, if you're in a truck with two men, it, you know, how is that not forcible confinement? Now, they weren't they didn't kidnap him, so to speak, but he was in a truck with, according to the Crown, both men, and he died in that truck. So I'm not sure why forcible confinement came off the, t- the table, and I can assure you uh, that if, in fact, this doesn't come back uh, as a first-degree murder, my feeling is that would be a very big um, you know, part of the appeal process for the Crown. Could he do that just to make it less complicated for the jury? Well, that's not... It, it's not his job to, to... No, it makes it more complicated. Yeah, yeah, it, I see it, what you're saying. It, it makes it much, much harder. The, the onus is just like the bar was set, and now it's like, here, let's raise it higher. Yeah. To me, it makes no sense. And I think a lot of people were left scratching their head, their head as to, why not just keep the option on the table? But, but clearly, uh, this judge, who I, you know, is a smarter person <laughs> than me, or knows a lot more than me, seemed to not believe that the evidence was there to support forcible confinement. Again, many will come back and argue and say, well, hold on a second. He was in a truck with two men, and it's easy to suggest that uh, an armed man with a gun, it would be very hard for Tim Bossett to get out of that truck. So how do you take that off the table? But again, uh, this, I think, is something that we should watch uh, for, the, for the future. Uh, do you think after the verdict comes in, you may have answers to that question? 
I certainly uh, could probably gauge more on it. I mean, yeah. I certainly asked a number of lawyers. It was one of those things that we heard on Friday. I did a report on it. It wasn't highlighted. And the more I thought about it, I thought, that's really weird. And I talked to a few lawyers over the weekend. And then, you know, we talked to the Crown and just trying to flush it out. And it's certainly something, I think, after uh, verdict time that, that will be delved into. Certainly, uh, you know, this case will be, no matter what happens, uh, with verdict, it will be appealed by one yeah. side or the other. No yeah. question. Um, and so I think we'll find out more on that. All right. Uh, Steve, did you have any more questions? No, that's great. Thank you so much. All right. Much, thank Alex. you. Cheers. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell if uh, you would like to ask Alex Pearson a question. All right. Let's get into uh, what we were, and sorry, the jury was not allowed to hear. Wade into that. What can you tell us? All right. So this is, we've got a lot here. The first and foremost, and certainly the, the worst-kept secret during this trial, is that both of these men face further murder charges. We have not been allowed to talk about that under any circumstances. Not even mention that Laura Babcock's name did not come up in that courtroom in front of that jury for four and a half months. Wayne Millard barely came up. But certainly, Mr. Millard... Uh, t- uh, Mr. Uh, Delamillard is charged with the first degree murder of his father, who was uh, shot in the head November 29, 2012. Uh, and that was initially deemed a, a uh, suicide. Uh, and then it was, of course, later reopened after Mr. Millard was charged with Tim Bosma's murder. Then the police then made that further charge. Both Mr. Smith and both Mr. Millard are charged in connection with the first degree murder of Laura Babcock, the 23-year-old who went missing back in July of 2012. You know, curiously, the jury heard uh, evidence that there was an incinerator uh, purchased by these two men in that same uh, time frame. Her body has never been recovered, but um, they those two charges were never referred to in this case to this jury. And so that's the one thing that, while widely reported, you know, in the last couple of years, it was not talked about at all. And so, you know, we got shut down here, Scott, over and over and over on legal arguments, and a lot of people say, is this normal, what's going on? And yes, it is normal in a trial to have legal arguments. Is it normal to have this many legal arguments? No. But the complexities of this trial, and while I have always, always maintained that this is a very historical case, this will be remembered in Canadian history as just like one of those very kind of unique cases, is that, you know, obviously if these two men are convicted on these further charges, they go into the serial uh, killer lead. Um, but also, it just added so much complexity to the evidence we heard, and more to the point of what we didn't hear. There's so much evidence that didn't go in, and a lot of it I still can't talk about, because this judge put such sweeping publication bans on it to protect the integrity of these future trials. Now, do I believe that it went too far? Absolutely. There's certain uh, evidence that I can't talk about that I absolutely, absolutely think should have gone in before this, this jury. And, and lots of legal people can argue with me on that. But there are certain texts and conversations that I feel very strongly should have gone in. One of those in particular uh, is the talk of two guns. So while we all knew that there were there was evidence presented during this trial that there were actually two guns or, or evidence to suggest there was more, more than one firearm, that never went before the jury. 
And I think that's a mistake, but that's mm. just my opinion. So, so bear that in mind. But there was a conversation uh, with Brendan Daly and Mr. Smith, and this came out in what's called a voir dire. A voir dire is a very fancy name for a smaller trial within a trial that the jury doesn't hear and we can't report. But Brendan Daly essentially told uh, the judge that uh, there was a conversation uh, between he and Mr. Smith, where Mr. Smith t- said, Della Millard got my gun, the Walther PPK, and I ended up getting another one. Uh, and then went on to show Mr. Daly this video about zombie bullets. This is a very particular type of bullet. It's a very destructive bullet, you know, where it goes in and it does all the damage kind of in the back end. It kind of explodes yeah. once it enters the body. But these pieces of information did not go in. The other text that did not go in is a, is a conversation between Della Millard and his gun dealer issue. The guy he bought the murder weapon, Mark Smith says, the Wolfer PPK, and he's asking whether it's clean or dirty. Um, and, and Ishu says it's clean. And then Mr. Millard says, well, she'll be coming back dirty. Mm. And that to me speaks yeah. right there to premeditation. Yeah. Um, but that did not go in. And then the conversation further. What would be the reasons for that not going in? Honestly, I don't know. I literally do not understand how... Because it's not like that... Sorry, go ahead. It's not like that's related to these other crimes. Well... Well, maybe it is. We can argue that. Yeah, yeah, I guess we could. We're talking about the gunshot death of Tim Bosma. Yeah. And a conversation between a guy that sold a gun to Della Millard, and that gun was used to murder Tim Bosma, and we're not allowed to talk about the fact that he's saying, hey, this gun's going to come back dirty. That means... That, that is, you know, street talk for saying, I'm going to kill somebody with this gun. And then he says, you know, when Ishu asks him further, make sure it comes back clean. You know, that's when Millard said, not. She'll, she'll be coming back dirty, which Ishu, I guess, in his street talk said, uh, yeah, well, I, I have a way of, of cleaning these things and taking mm-hmm. the prints off and changing the mechanics of it. But nonetheless, I think it speaks volumes. Um, you know, some uh, lawyers would argue that all that shows bad character. Well, if the glove fits, wear it. You know what yeah, I mean? So yeah, yeah. That, that is just my opinion. I think I think the jury hearing that it would have been a whole to, to think that both men had guns that night would have been a to me uh, a game changer. So uh, there was that kind of information um, that came out. Two mistrial applications went in on this trial. One of which, um, and sorry. Before I go past this point, I want to make clear there are other texts that I'm still not allowed to talk about um, that will come out in time, uh, but very much kind of go into that gray area of those other trials. But they're very damning, damning conversations. Um, the two mistrial applications, which I never reported, but certainly uh, you know chewed off all my fingernails on, uh, one came within five weeks of the trial starting. It was a joint application put forward by Della Millard and Mark Smith. And I cannot disclose why, uh, but certainly uh, it, it was nerve-wracking. The Bosnians were certainly um, nervous about it. We weren't sure where it was going to go. It did end up getting tossed out. And then a second trial application was filed towards the end of the trial by Mark Smith, who felt um, his right to a fr- fair trial had been uh, somehow impugned by the uh, testimony of Mark, um, his friend Brendan Daly, who had testified that he had anger control uh, issues um, and, and, you know, the violent rap lyrics uh, pointed out that mm. that 
somehow not fair. That, again, was thrown out. Alex, uh, I got a couple of email questions I want to ask uh, here first uh, as well. But before we get to that, uh, did we not know that uh, Millard was a suspect in his father's death prior to yep. the trial? Yes, it was widely reported, and that's it, mainly the reason we're allowed to report it now is because it's out in the public domain. So that was reported, obviously, uh, around the time of his arrest because investigations were opened again after Tim Bosma's, um, you know, death and then the subsequent charges of first-degree murder against Mr. Millard. And when the police had that, they said, okay, we've got to start looking into this missing person, Laura Babcock, who was his then, you know, a gal he was dating, um, as, as well as Mr. Wayne Millard, who died rather suddenly uh, on November 29th, 2012. And so when they opened those investigations, all that information did in fact come out. But as as what happens, in, in it, it does happen in, in any kind of legal proceeding. The closer you get to trial, uh, they'll put these publication bans on because A, they have to pick a jury. They need to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, non-biased people that, that can go in. The fact that these weren't reported, it's not like no one knew about them, but certainly the jury may have thought that they went away or maybe they forgot about it. Some of them will have it top of mind. Certainly it was the most widely questioned asked of me, like, why aren't they talking about these other murders? Because it, it would be prejudicial uh, to their right to a free trial, so a fair trial, rather. So that way it was kept out, but literally we would get shut down any time we came near the name Laura Babcock or anything to do uh, with that investigation. And that's what made this trial so complex. Um, we had to be careful as a media not to tread in certain areas. Uh, there was certainly, I mean, even publishing the stories that I'm telling you now required several, 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 um, you know, meetings with the judge and lawyers and, and lots of, uh, you know, fighting on behalf of all the media to get these stories out because it's not about the media. It's about making sure that this information is transparent and so that people understand what is going on, and it preserves really the balance of tra- you know, transparency within our court system. So we fought to get as many as we could published. We got a fair amount, but there's still a lot we can't talk about. Um, but but let me continue, and you can interrupt me any time because we still have quite a bit to go through as far as things that that weren't heard. Is that cool? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So one of the areas that we talked about was drugs, and we often heard about all the weed. Well, mm-hmm. there was a hell of a lot more than weed, let me tell you, but it was not allowed to be uh, brought into uh, this case. But, um, you know, Mark Smith was a well-known crack dealer, um, and there was a heck of a lot more than weed. There was steroids uh, that was Millard was tinkering with, heroin, uh, crack, uh, meth, uh, and there was constant drugs all over, and, and certainly more than just weed removed from Mr. Millard's house the night of his arrest. At one point, it was uh, suggested that Mr. Schlattman, who was the handyman of Mr. Millard, was actually building a secret compartment in one of his trailers to secretly import uh, narcotics. It it was talked about, uh, but not really outwardly said, that that hangar that belonged to his father, Wayne, was a chop shop, a full-blown chop shop with many, many um, stolen vehicles and, and, and things in it, and that's how it was operating. Um, and certainly that happened after Mr. Millard's uh, sudden death. Um, but again, it wasn't widely reported uh, that that was the kind of thing that was, was going on. So maybe that would answer some of the questions as to why certain people weren't running to the police so quickly because they mm. might have been trying to protect their own uh, rear ends. Um, so why, other, so yeah. let me stop you there. Why would would they would the judge not allow the stuff about the drugs and the chop shop just simply because it paints a picture of their character and not necessarily is related to the case? 
Yeah, bad behavior is not what they're on trial here for. They're right. not on trial for drug use. Yeah, they're on right. trial for murder. Okay. So that would be considered prejudicial. But right. at the same time, I would argue, and many defense lawyers would tell me to shut up, um, that I think it speaks volumes to, look, there's, a, well, there's one thing in smoking weed. There's a whole other level when you're doing meth and, and yeah. crack. I mean, that kind of t- heroin. I mean, these things put you into a completely different category. So to me, when you're talking about buying guns and that's going to come back dirty and, and heroin and chop shops and that, that to me paints a pretty... Uh, different picture yeah. than, hey, we went out and stole some plants. Um, the other interesting guy, and, and his testimony was riveting, Robert Burns, Dr. Burns, this is a veterinarian uncle of Dylan Millard, otherwise known as a quote-unquote sick, twisted prick, which is what this veterinarian called him. Really? The jury never heard him. When he came in to testify, <clears throat> and this was in the first six weeks of the trial, the hate and disdain he has towards his nephew was so palpable you could feel it. Hmm. Dellen tried to make eye contact with him several times and, and Burns wanted nothing to do with it. He would end up testifying that he was horrified at the fact that he had been brought into this and that Dellen Millard was out and about telling everybody that he and his uncle were going to start this you know, roving pet incineration business. He said it never happened. That conversation never happened. He was trying at one point to make eye contact um, to show empathy towards the Bosma, but his testimony, which in its totality lasted about five minutes, ended on going on for some time because we kept having to shut him down for legal arguments because the lawyers were so worried hmm. that he might say something uh, that he wasn't. In fact, the judge cautioned him several times and said, stay in line. Like he was, Justice Goodman was really, really ticked off and said, knock it off. Like this behavior. Like, because the veterinarian was being so aggressive towards Millard. Yeah, he, yeah. You, you could tell he wanted to say so much, mm-hmm. but he couldn't. The judge basically had to say, you answer only questions you're, you're asked and right. nothing more. Right. Nothing more. Don't go out of line. Um, there was uh, many times when it got very heated when we talked about the video games that these guys would play. It was Halo, uh, which Thomas Dungy kept using the term Killing game, killing game, it's a killing game. And a lot of people wrote into me saying, come on, you can't judge someone on the games they play or the lyrics. Yeah. This became so agitating for Dylan Millard that while Mr. Dungy kept talking about the killing game, he actually stood up in court and said, Your Honor, to which Your Honor almost like <laughs> fell out of his chair. You, first of all, if you're ever accused in a court, you cannot stand up during proceedings. You certainly can't stand up in front of a jury. And, and, and the, of course, the jury was whisked out. And uh, the judge said, uh, Mr. Pillay, your client? <laughs> Everyone was like, why? So wait a sec. So, so uh, uh, Millard becomes disturbed by what's being said, and yeah. he stands up and starts addressing the judge. At that point, the judge kicks the jury out? Yeah, it was like, well, what are you doing? So before he even addresses or tries to discipline Millard, he gets rid of the jury. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it was like, um, yeah, no one wanted to bring attention. We all saw it. I wasn't allowed to report it, but we saw it. I was like, hey, anyone seeing the guy accused of murder standing up in the court? Like, it was like, everyone kind of was like, stop this, stop yeah. this. And then it, it kind of ended very quickly, but it got really kind of, um, you know, he sat right back down. But again, if you're accused with a crime... Don't stand up in court. Well, this is typical of him waving whenever he <laughs> yeah. asked to identify it, the, him yeah. in, the, in the courtroom. I mean, that was kind of odd, and it happened several times at the beginning, right? He was so agitated by this this term, killing game, that was being used to describe, you know, what he and, and, and Mark Smith did. It was visibly noticed. So what that. was Millard trying to say to the judge about it? He was lawyer's attention, and Pillay wasn't, I guess, responding as quickly as he wanted, and so he decided to stand up and do it himself. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
The other interesting thing was some of the language um, and a couple of, you know, there was some text sent between Mr. Millard and Andrew Michelski, his best friend, right after uh, Wayne Millard uh, dies. There's a text conversation, which we heard a little bit about, and then it was about, oh, we need to make some money. My father left me in a huge amount of debt. I need to make 100 k a month. I don't know if you recall that. But there's another part of that conversation where Della Millard is kind of engaging Michelski, saying, are you up for some, you know, missions and bigger things? Like, it was showing that they were escalating things. And in uh, one text that the jury didn't hear, uh, Millard says, hard work is one thing, scary work is another, uh, law is, I think he said, uh, you know, intimidating. And, and Machelski answers back, say hello to my little friend, that very infamous line out of the movie Scarface. Mr. Mm. Uh, Justice Goodman wanted that out. He didn't know what Scarface was, nor did he understand what that comment meant. Everyone else in the court certainly did. He certainly learned after the fact that, you know, say hello to my little friend. That's a very famous scene yeah. in a very violent movie where uh, he basically picks up his machine gun and says, mm. say hello to my little friend and, and wipes the room out. Yeah. Um, but just kind of goes to the that they were escalating missions and they were all, I guess, apparently, whether they were joking or not, um, were happy to refer to these things. Um, the big one, and I cannot talk to this much, would be how did those letters actually get out? One day I'm going to explain that, Scott, and you're going to fall off your chair. Wow. <laughs> now I'm going to leave it right there. Oh, my. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to some questions that people have sent in. Uh, I think we already know the answer to this one. Uh, Brad writes, can you ask Alex if they can be convicted each on different charges or do they have to be the same? In other words, can Millard be found guilty of first degree, Schmidt ba- uh, found guilty of manslaughter? Do they have to be both convicted of the same? No, they can both, and they will both be judged uh, differently. The, the judge spent quite a bit of time in his charge to the jury explaining that you are to uh, judge these men separately and look at the evidence separately. Uh, so yes, equally, they can both be uh, convicted of first degree. They can both be convicted, one of first degree, one could be acquitted, one could get manslaughter, both could get second degree, so they can be completely given different outcomes, no, no question. Uh, we've, we've also covered this, uh, but maybe you can remind us again, why were these guys tried together? Why not separately? You couldn't try this case separately. It would be way too hard because one of them, I mean, they they did fight, and it's interesting that you bring that up. They did, at one time, the large lawyer was fighting for a venue change. He did not want, he wanted the, the, the trial to be held in Oshawa. Now, if you've ever been to Oshawa, the courtroom is about the size of my closet. It's very small and certainly would not be equipped to deal with a trial this big. That, of course, was denied. They also did fight at one point to have this done separately, feeling that uh, uh, Smith's lawyer wanted to be tried separately. It certainly would have made his job easier. Uh, because it would have been unfair. It would have been unfair, certainly to Mr. Millard, who I think faces the, the bigger um, amount of, of, of evidence, but they would not be able to get a fair trial if they were tried separately. Uh, one more question, this one from Kevin. Just want to know if you can ask uh, if these jurors have to stay away from their families during the whole trial and during the deliberation, do they get paid? Uh, okay, answer one, they uh, they can go home, uh, normal time, like they have family interactive, they can right. have a life during the trial, but during the jury sequestration, they've now been taken to a ho- hotel that we don't know of, no phones, no TVs, no gadgets, no internet, no bachelorette, nothing, uh, and so they are 
essentially they are brought down to the courtroom and held in a private room where they do all their deliberations. They go on meals. They are surrounded by uh, court-sworn constables uh, who protect uh, and preserve their privacy. Anything in communication that they have would be sent in a written note to the judge through one of these constables. So they are really, really shielded, and we will not be uh, given any access to them. So there's absolutely no way anyone would see them. Uh, and the, th- the other question was... Do they get paid? Yes, they do. After 10 days, they're paid a certain amount. And then after 50 days, I think the fee, and it may be at the judge's discretion, but certainly they get $100 a day uh, after 50 days. And th- this judge may have decided to give them a little bit more, uh, but I didn't hear any of that. But it, it is very normal that in, I think it's $40 a day after 10 days, Right, give or take, and then at 50 days it goes up to $100 a day. It's not much, but at least it, it covers something. And what responsibility does your employer have here? Do they have to pay you? Do they have to keep your job for you? We certainly can't fire someone for being on jury duty. I mean, uh, so, so you know, Scott get called, gets called to jury duty, mm-hmm. and that's your boss's, uh, you know, thing to deal with. And uh, so you can't be fired for that. Um, and what was your other question? Uh, no, you can't be fired for going on, on leave like this. So, oh, and do they do they pay you? Do, would your employer have to pay you? I don't know. I think that would be up to the employer. I think you know, in a, in a situation like this, certainly if there was like a teacher or someone who's in a unionized job, they would probably have that kind of protection. Yeah. If it's a private sector matter, I think it would be up to the employer. You know, it's not like these people ask to be doing this yeah. specific duty. You know, yeah, I think it would be kind of negotiable. Uh, and uh, another question, uh, we heard little bits about the mother, uh, Millard's mother during this. We talked about lots asked why yeah. they, you know, why uh, Millard's mother wasn't asked to testify. You said many times that it's just probably not a good idea to put uh, the parents of a convicted person uh, on the stand. But maybe elaborate a little yeah. bit more on why we didn't see more of a presence of Millard's mother. Well, certainly because... Uh, like she's she's not been here for one second. So I mean, if she has, she's been in costume. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's never come. Mr. Smith's mother and sister did come several days. Uh, the media did leave them alone. I think probably with Mr. Millard, a lot of it. Uh, her name is Madeline Burns. Um, first of all, it would have been a media circus. I think for her, or I mean, she may have felt that way. Um, certainly, certainly, she had been subpoenaed at one time. She had been questioned by police at one time. She has never spoken. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk as to whether or not she would appear, which would answer why she hadn't been in the courtroom, but that didn't happen to uh, be the, the actuality of it. So the bottom line is, I guess she just didn't want to show up either because she couldn't handle it or for maybe her own personal reasons, but mm. she's never been seen. Uh, why wasn't she charged uh, with tampering or withholding evidence yes. for, you know, the whole truck in her driveway thing? I get asked this question a lot. It's not like police didn't question people like her, uh, Shane Schlattman, uh, the whole crew. They were all questioned by police. Why weren't they charged? Well, there can be the theory that sometimes you, you focus on the, on the main target and let kind of the collateral go. Um, I, I guess the, the legal answer and the, the legal answer would be that the police didn't have enough evidence to charge. Hmm. You know, maybe they, yeah. they asked her, and, and, and there was no reason to believe it was done out of a nefarious purpose or couldn't prove it. Look, there are a whole bunch of people that I think in the court of public opinion will have to live 
with with mm. their conscience for a long time because Google doesn't go away. Um, and sometimes that's worse than getting charged uh, criminally. So these are the these folks are going to have to live with this for for life. And if they can sleep at night, then they're. Uh, Hmm. They're different people than, than me, but nonetheless, uh, I think that the long and short of it is they obviously didn't feel like it, it was the route to go as far as legal charges. Do you Certainly, think... Christina Nuga uh, did get charged. Right. Now, would deals have been made in exchange for testimony? <clears throat> to my knowledge, no, no deals were made in this case. Okay. And would you would would that be possible without anyone knowing? You know, you testify, we won't charge you. Um, I'm not sure they would have exercised all that information, certainly up front. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, you saw what happened in Carla Hamolka in the Paul Bernardo case where, where they just completely screwed that up and made a terrible, terrible deal. But they learned a lot from, from making the deal with that devil. And I, I don't think in a case like this they wanted to make any deals. Hmm. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the attorney general in this case uh, waived prelim on this thing. They, they felt that they had enough evidence to get this thing into a court. Uh, you know, and, and move it ahead to trial pretty quickly. Um, and so I don't think they needed to make any deals. Uh, another question from email. After the final verdict and the trial is 100% over, will the jury be allowed to talk publicly about the trial? Could they write a book or give interviews or profit from them? No, in, in Canada, we don't do that. So, you know, you often see in the United States, they set up the podium and all the jurors come out and talk. Now, can they talk um, about the case in general, they could. They don't, we don't tend to, to go to juries with that kind of thing, but what they can't talk about is deliberations. They're not allowed by law to talk about anything that was discussed uh, as far as coming to their decision. So we're much different in Canada about that. And the, the bottom line is, I mean, it's barely, you barely get any media who approach the, um, the jury. We're very good like that, where we just kind of let them let, let right. do the thing. So you're limited in what you can ask them. But so, no, they could not profit from this trial uh, writing a book about this, no. That was so not it's easy. not necessarily that they have to keep quiet about it in private, but they certainly can't profit from it. They certainly can't profit from it, but again, they cannot under any circumstances talk about what they discussed during this trial. All right, uh, so you've been able to tell us some of the stuff that you weren't allowed to chat about during yeah. the uh, trial, the jury didn't get to hear. We understand there is still information that you can't talk about because mm-hmm. of cases that are pending. Um this is going to be an odd question, but what can't you tell us? In other words, I'm not looking for the information, but give us, a, give us a direction about, I can't go over there, I can't go over here. What can't you tell us? Well, I can't talk to you about several texts, uh, which, which I can't talk to you about. But mm-hmm. there are texts that I think when are, they are heard, we'll, we'll have people saying, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. The question I raise about how did those letters get out? I'm going to talk to you one day, Scott. And as soon as I can go with it, you're going to go, are you kidding me? Hmm. Are you kidding me? Wow. And I'll leave it there. And not, not just pertaining to this case. I just think sometimes I just scratch my head. So uh, this pertains to the charges that are in the future, correct? That's why you can't talk about this, because yeah. there's cases that still have to be decided. Because there are many smart crown attorneys and many, many people, investigative people, watching what we say to make sure that we don't compromise the integrity of those cases moving forward. Um, you know, certainly it is it, remarkable that everybody keeps their mouth shut, isn't it? Well, it don't is you don't you find? Well, have you ever been called up before a judge? The last thing oh, you want yeah. <laughs> is for a judge to say, "Is the person from?" 900 CHML in this courtroom. Alex, could you please stand up? Yeah. Uh, yes, you've broken a publication ban, and you're going to be... I, I, I would sooner 
I would sooner stick my head in honey than have that happen because it would be terrible. It would be terrible to bring any kind of, you know, negativity or anything to this family or any family who goes through this. You do not want to be the person to compromise any kind of of, a criminal investigation. It's just not the thing you want to do. How does this, as you know, uh, the verdict's uh, still out at this point, but Mm -hmm. and we've chatted about this before. How does this case compare to others that you've covered? Um, it's certainly up there. I mean, look, <clears throat> there's different cases like Tori Stafford, you know, that was a, an agreed statement of fact. She pleaded out to first-degree murder. You know, in Jane Kriba, we had, you know, the, the main shooter that was, you know, he pleaded to second-degree murder. I mean, those are always very kind of emotionally charged. For this, you know, we've all gotten very close with the Bosma family. We all, you know, members of this community, uh, either, we're sitting tight right now, but there's this kind of like knot in your tummy, yeah. uh, this nervous feeling like, what if it doesn't come back first degree? I mean, if it doesn't come back first degree, I can tell you categorically, it will be just a travesty. It'll mm. be a travesty. It will be automatically appealed by the Crown. Um, it, this case will be automatically appealed no matter what uh, happens. But I mean, I have covered murder trials where I thought it was just so obvious. And then the next minute, I'm interviewing the person that was on the stand accused of murder. And I'm like, how is this person? I mean, Mm. stuff happens. Um, Let me ask you, what's it like to look at and make eye contact with an alleged killer? I can tell you, these two are pieces of work. Um, I I find mm, Smith creepier than Millard. I mean, Millard is kind of goofy. He tries to be charming, and he's more alarming. Smith, though, is like haunting. He looks at you, and he locks eyes with you, and his eyes are dead. Yeah. He's a creepo. Yeah, yeah. Alleged creepo. So uh, is there a common denominator between these people that you've seen over the years? Explain that. Is is, is, is there, as you look at the Millards, the Smitches of the world, and the other cases that you've covered, and you look into their eyes and you see them, is there there something that, are they all completely different, or is there something similar about them all? No, no, no. These these guys are different because, as Mr. Michalski said, like, we're dealing with a thrill kill. At least when you look at a gangbanger, you know, you can say, okay, it was a, a fight, someone got caught in the crossfire, I mean... You know, you can always kind of like not rationalize it, but you can go, okay, like yeah. guess that's the reason. But this one, it makes no sense. Yeah. Why would two guys do it, like for the fun of it? Yeah. Millard had a lot of money. They didn't have to escalate it like this. They didn't have to destroy so many lives. You know, so it's just been an enormous toll. And like I said, when that, that when the verdict comes down, Scott, and we will have that information out as soon as it comes, um, it will be riveting and and it'll be emotional. And I I, I I invite you down here if you haven't been to one. It is like nothing. You, you cannot see this on TV. The emotion that's packed into it, and there'll be. Either way, if it comes back second degree, the Bosnians will be devastated. If it comes back first degree, there may be a motion of happiness for about four seconds, and then they'll realize, oh, yeah, Tim, Tim's not coming home. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't change for them. Yeah, there is no celebration, is there? No. Alex Pearson has been with us, of course, covering the Tim Bosman murder trial and taking your questions. And, of course, as soon as a verdict breaks, we will talk to Alex again. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. Cheers, guys.